you'd go outside and there'd be someone burning your flag. Burning then, an American flag. Burning an American flag. And you'd be like, oh, okay. And then the absurd thing is the same kid that was burning the flag was sitting in the front row of your class looking at you going with the English, hello teacher, can you teach me some English? Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I look into one of the most transformative travel experiences of my life, specifically the two years I spent living in South Korea in my mid-20s. I moved there to teach English not long after my first vagabonding van trip around North America, and while at the time I saw this mainly as a way to make money, my experiences there changed my life in ways I couldn't have understood before I showed up and tried to make sense of living in another culture. Now, the idea of living in another country when you're young has long been a part of the American literary consciousness, though it's usually understood in the context of Ernest Hemingway and Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein in Paris in the days after World War I. A Korea in the 1990s didn't enjoy the same romantic reputation as Paris in the 1920s, but in retrospect, it was kind of a golden age that changed the lives of a lot of people. My inspiration to become an expatriate was not in fact tied to the reveries of Hemingway, but to the fact that two of my closest college friends had gone to Korea a couple years before I did, and they convinced me to come and join them. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by those two old friends, Steve Fuller and Brian Hartenstein, who helped me make sense of how the joys and idiosyncrasies of living and working in a culture not our own changed our lives for the better. Brian, as you might recall, previously appeared on this podcast in episode 124 when we talked about freight train hopping in the Pacific Northwest. Now he works as an English teacher. Steve works as a financial consultant. Together, we talk about what expatriate life in Korea was like back in the day. We talk about our initial motivations for going there and how this decision was not normal in the provincial parts of the United States where we grew up. We talk about the sensory overload and culture shock that greeted us when we first moved to Asia and how we soon came to love it. We talk about the stereotypes we brought to Korea and the sometimes stereotypical ways that Koreans perceived us. Our conversation is specific to what we were like and what Korea was like in the 1990s, but there's a lot of universal themes here about living in an unfamiliar culture and how both positive and negative experiences helped us to understand it better. We start by talking about how, at the time, the prospect of moving overseas to make money was a way of postponing professional life after college. Let's listen in. My experience was that uh, after... 17 years of structure of, of going to school um, and being 22 and, and realizing that I was going to be thrown into the deep end of life, I probably wanted to do something else. And I had had the opportunity at the end of my junior year through a, a juniors abroad program at George Fox to go to Europe. And I ended up extending that a couple of weeks and really had a, a great time. So was that your first time? That was my first time overseas. So I, I got a little bit of the wanderlust. And so when I heard about Korea and the opportunity to save some money and live overseas, it sounded much better than jumping into uh, real life in a nine to five setting. So I jumped on it and uh, it was a blast. I remember sitting down in the Korea services group office where we, we had to go interview and fill out some paperwork to, to finalize the position. And, I didn't know a thing about Korea. So the guy was showing me pictures and in the back of my head, I, I was thinking, well, I'm going to negotiate for six months and it's a, it's a 12 year program, a, a one year program. So I kept asking, well, what about six months, six months? He said, look, we don't do six months. Either you're going to go or you're not going to go. And I ended up staying for six years. So six hmm. months turned into six years. And you also married a Korean and have did. kids with your 
to, to be specific, Steve and I went to the city of Chunju. I know there's a, a lot of people listening that probably have been to Korea. And that first year was 1994 uh, in Chunju, and it was just magic. It was everything you'd ever want a young experience to be. We were teaching. We had a little money. We were using that the time off to travel internationally. It was a great hub to go different places. We were out every night just enjoying everything about youth that you could possibly want. Well, this was a big influence on me because Steve talks about not knowing anything about Korea before we went. I was the same way. I didn't even really have the instincts to buy a travel guide to Korea. <laughs> you guys had talked about Korea and I showed up. And I think one thing this comes down to is it's sort of a rite of passage for young people, expatriate life. There's different iterations of expatriate life. But it's almost like the type that we're talking about is young people with not a lot of life experience using life overseas to, without doing it on purpose to further their education and, and broaden their, their toolkit in life. And it's funny how superficial our motivations can be. And we can talk a little bit more about more motivations. To not, not to mince words, but you guys were partying your asses off. <laughs> I got letters, this is before the email age, I got letters from you where you were clearly very happy right? You were working hard. You can't, you can't get away with not working hard in Korea, but you were also partying hard. You were out all the time. You weren't necessarily nightclub guys in the United States. Suddenly you were nightclub guys in Korea, you know, um, suddenly it's as if you sort of came into a version of yourselves that hadn't existed in the United States. And that more so than the lessons I later learned is sort of what sparked my attention about that. We were Rolf, we were going into places where we were the, it was literally the first time they'd ever seen a white person. I had students that would sit in my class and they would touch the hair on my arm and just, whoa, what is this? Or they'd look at my blue eyes and say, oh, I've never seen that before. And you'd walk down the street and old men would cross the street to shake your hand or, and then we ran into all kinds of crazy characters, everything from gangsters to young kids screaming fuck you on the bus and <laughs> and just wild experiences that you wouldn't get in any other day there was a lot of novelty uh, in, in our time there and we got a lot of free cab rides yeah a lot of free drinks yeah we were partying but i think we would have done that anywhere in the world whether we were back home or in korea it was a time and a place the, the thing that was so amazing about korea i always said it was like it was like being in college with no homework and a little bit of money in your pocket. We can just run around and do whatever we want. We still have that academic school year we were, we were living off of. We just had a blast. And I think it was like a timeout as well. Yes. We felt like time had stopped and we had found this kind of magic passage into this other world and we, we lived it up. I think this is, it's worth acknowledging um, that this was a transitional time. You know, you think about that classic time in Paris in the 1920s, it was sort of driven by the fact that World War One had made that part of Europe very poor comparatively and sort of affordable. Whereas our situation, Korea is now seen as this very sophisticated industrialized country. Um, at the time, it was still sort of getting into its own. You could go to a provincial place like Chunju. How many yes. people lived in Chunju? 500,000 at the time. Five, so half a million people in Chunju, and they were excited to see Americans. Yeah, and I remember at the time someone telling me there were 33 foreigners. Wow. That was a magical place. Yeah. It was bright. It had a big city feel. There was always something happening 24 hours a day. It was amazing. Yeah. And, and so it feels like this might even be historical. Like now you go to Chenju and people might not give you a second glance. Correct. But at the time, 
Korea wasn't quite as sort of wealthy and cutting edge as it is now. And so it's strange to think that our time in, as expatriates are historical now as maybe Paris in the 20s in certain senses of the word. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about my decision to come and we can get into the weeds a little bit of this partying culture and the work culture and, mm -hmm. and sort of the, the lessons that we learned. Again, almost by accident, I ended up learning so much by being in Korea without realizing what I was in for when I came. And one funny thing, Brian, you, you know, you both wrote great letters, but Brian would, was clearly lying, you know, talking about hunting mutant chihuahuas in the sewers of Seoul and getting into, you know, fist fights with North Korean operatives or whatever. And so it's clear that there was a there was a heightened version of yourselves that I was a little bit jealous of. And I think this might attach itself. There's a lot of depressed people in expatriate communities, and I think we can touch that in a little bit. But there's also young people feeling out who they are in these places. And that was one exciting, that became an exciting part of, of where I was. And, you know, I had taken that van trip around the United States. It was my first vagabonding trip ever with uh, Jeff, who's a friend of us from, friend of ours from George Fox College. I had tried to write a book about it, just sort of arrogantly thinking, okay, well, this is where I write a book and I become an author. Well, I learned some important lessons in failing to write that book, but sort of with my tail between my legs, I was sort of going through a mid-20s crisis. I wasn't sure what would happen next. And you guys are like, come to Korea. You can make some money. You can save some money. You can travel some more. You can figure things out. And so I remember flying in in the middle of winter, uh, just in time for Thanksgiving, actually, and um, landing in this place that was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. I could intellectualize it, but suddenly I, didn't, I wasn't used to being the only white guy in the room or, um, you know, in a country full of Asian people. I had a mentor, you guys, um, you met him, Brian, um, John Ferdine, who I co-dedicated vagabonding to. He was in Korea as a war guy and he had this crazy experience where he was captured by the North Koreans and he escaped and he went across a minefield. And, and so I had sort of this, this, this mythical sense of what Korea was. And almost immediately, just landing in the airport and suddenly it's like, wow, I've never been in a situation like this mm -hmm. before. How does this work? And one thing I, I would like to touch on, I'm a Kansas guy, not a big cosmopolitan place. Steve, you're from a logging town in, in mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest. Brian, you're from a same, rural place same. in the Pacific Northwest. What was it yeah. like for you guys when you first rolled in? Well, the same kind of uh, uh, situation where you're suddenly off the plane, you're uh, thrust into a taxi, you're flying down this road on sidewalks, and the guy is doing pulling U-turns, and there's he's careening into bicycles, and it just seems like you're in a video game immediately. And then he puts Michael Bolton on a cassette player, and the soundtrack is going, he's mm -hmm. screaming at it, and he's cursing and smoking, and, and suddenly it, all your senses are wild. And Ralph, what I wanted to say was, you know, when you are that person who's the only one that looks like you in the entire social group, and you completely um, uh, eliminate all other distractions and all expectations, you are able to cerebrally focus on the experience and you're able to get into your head and think, what is happening? Who am I and how am I dealing with this? So couple that one experience with thousands of experiences that are the same, you really start to, to develop an idea of yourself. So a lot of young people are gravitated toward travel like this because it's such a unique time to think about yourself, who you are and what you really want in the world. And well, I think one thing that's worth acknowledging in the context of expatriate life, I think a lot of young people travel, but in travel, you're always a little bit of a consumer. You're the person at the beach hut, at the bar, renting yeah. the equipment, 
to go on the trek. Whereas in expatriate life, you're not a consumer. You're, you're part of the workforce all of a sudden. And teachers are, we were all teacher expats, but um, teachers are re respected in Korea, but you're not, you're not there to be served on. You're, you're no, there you're, to do some work. So you're immersed in the culture. Yeah. And so it's interesting, you know, when you mentioned Michael Bolton, I was thinking he probably played that because he thought that all Americans listen to Michael Bolton. And one, one funny thing, um, I'm sure Steve, as a musician, you can appreciate this. When I first arrived, I realized that Koreans just assumed that American music or Western music was what Western people listened to. And so I was sort of in the weeds of like indie rock and like grunge. That's my thing. I would never listen to Michael Bolton or like this Eurodance music. And they're just like, oh, a white person. We'll put in whatever Western music it is. And it could have been Michael Jackson. It could have been some really cheesy disco stuff from Europe. But it was exotic to them. And I think... You know, you get in that, that taxi and maybe that, and during that time, the taxi driver doesn't have many um, American uh, cab drivers. So it's just this interesting it's dynamic. suddenly hyper-realism. Yeah. yeah. I remember a real sense of sensory overload when I first first arrived. Just, you know, so many, so much coming at you, so many people in your face. Um, one of the unique things about being in Korea and being that expat person, especially in the area that we lived in, was you're really a people magnet. So you got a lot of interface and interaction in, in unique ways that you, you wouldn't have if you were just travel, traveling through. Were you guys anxious at all? Um, I arrived in the winter and I was a little bit down because I thought I was going to be a writer and I hadn't that had gone nowhere. And then I showed up in Korea without really knowing anything about Korea. And suddenly I was working, you know, 30 hours a week and... Mm -hmm. um, it was winter and, and it was sort of cold and the days were dark. And I remember just waking up thinking, what the hell am I doing? What's going to happen? And actually hanging out with you guys and probably drinking too much and then just sort of independently. It took me a while to get used to being in that culture. Um, and I think this happened to a lot of expatriates who would, who would imagine it would be, oh, it's just Buddhist culture and maybe some flute music and, and, and motorcycles. But it was actually a very... Um, workaholic place. I, I was sort of caught off guard. What, what were some of the shocks that you guys experienced living in another culture for the first time? Oh, the, this, we could just go on, on, on this subject, you know, just to kind of piggyback on your comment about the, the thing that you were into the grunge music, for example. And then once you arrive, you're, you toss that out and you're now dealing with a whole new set of expectations that people have about you. I was into a certain kind of music and Kurt Cobain died the day I arrived the first news I got was that Kurt Cobain had died. And then I just left it all behind. And now looking back, I lost, I lost years. I lost, uh, I used to be good at trivial, trivial pursuit, but now I can't, I can't answer questions from that time because I was focused on the culture that I was living in. Uh, you know, you might say the OJ trial. Well, I don't really know about that. I can know about the Hong Kong transfer of power, you know? Uh, so it's just kind of funny, but uh, Ralph, there are so many things that would happen to you. You'd, you'd have a class and um, all the women would say, let's go mountain climbing. And you're like, all right, great. And they'd show up in high heel stilettos and mini skirts. And you're like, what are we doing? And they're like, let's go. And they're climbing up the mountain. You're like, you're going to die. What are you doing? Or uh, you, you know, a gangster would come up to you and say, uh, you are my friend now and you must come to my coffee shop. And he'd, he'd put a chair in front of the window and say, you sit here. And you say, oh, okay. And now you're in front of a window is like a mannequin. And people would say, oh, foreigner, I want to come in. And drink at this at this coffee shop, and you found yourself being either used or or you know surrounded with people that wanted something from you, and so it was just weird and fantastic, but also uh, absorbing and kind of draining in many ways. 
It was draining. Korea is a, a really good guest culture, so they people always wanted to host us. So there were there were always impromptu, you know, coffee meetings or meals. In Korean, people ask you, "Did you eat?" It's sort of as a, "How how are you?" You know, nice to see you, sort of greeting. And so I always thought, well. Why are they always offering us lunch? So I think Brian and I ended up getting <laughs> people would buy us lunch even though they didn't mean to buy us right. lunch because we misunderstood part of the, the language. But um, yeah, again, back to the sensory overload. Um, it was just so uh, new and exciting and, and confusing. Korea is very different than than things in the West. And uh, gosh, weird, weird stuff. Yeah, um, culture, just culture survival, shock. Just trying to survive. Culture right? shock is real. That is a real thing. Yeah. Uh, you can be walking down the street and a school bus will come by and 40 kids will open all the windows and scream, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. Because <laughs> it's a word they yeah, know. And you're just, you're just on the street going, me? Or then, then you know, a, a woman can open up a door and throw a, a, a giant bucket of water on you. Or I remember um, waking up in the morning and stretching, looking out my window, and there was a woman taking a dump right outside on the top Ugh. of the building, just right next to me, going, well, you know what? <laughs> how is that possible? How is this possible? What is this world we've entered into? So it was magnetic and repulsive also. Well, I think some people listening might think, oh, yeah, he's got to be exaggerating. Climbing a mountain in, 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 in mini skirts and high heels? Well, no. I mean, the, the Korean model of femininity was very much about being sort of put together constantly. And so Korea is very mountainous. Hiking is very popular. But I was in the same situation where it's like, really? You're going to hike in, in your heels, in your skirt? They do. <laughs> and that's part of culture shock. I think part of my anxiety was culture shock. But there's a word, Steve, that I learned from you, actually. And I think it explains a lot of what was happening with the gangsters seating you in the front of the restaurant. Segewa. What does oh. segewa mean? International? Globalization. That's Globalization. it. Yeah. So we were in Korea. Like now, like Korean movies and music are consumed all over the world. At the time, Segewa was kicking in in Korea. It was globalization. They realized that globalization was important. I mean, they called it the Hermit Kingdom historically. Yes. Suddenly, they realized that it was important to be international. And so it became a part of status to seat the American guy in the bar. It didn't matter if it was goofy guys like us or someone wearing a three-piece suit. Mm -hmm. The Koreans saw the American, they saw the foreigner, and that lent them a, 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 an aura of sophistication. And not to get too far ahead, but I know that, Steve, you and I worked together at a technical college that didn't need English teachers. We were basically yeah. hired on the staff of this of people who were, work, who were training to be food processors and auto mechanics because it gave the school status to have teacher employees. And so one thing I want to sort of turn the corner into now is our profession, because we were all hired not to be... Business consultants, we were not, you know, brought in um, for some sort of hospitality thing. We were brought in as teachers and very specifically as conversation teachers. Our, our students had better grammar in English than us. <laughs> they needed a bunch of native speaking Americans to come in and have conversations with kids for about 30 hours a week plus private lessons. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like to be teachers in this era. Were either of you trained at all? Did you have any training coming in? None. No, a little bit at school. Uh, I'm a teacher now, but but uh, not not nothing near the uh, baptism by fire of just being thrown into <laughs> those classes. So so let's talk about that. The baptism of fire. I have my own stories, and I'm I'm the son of teachers teaching in sort of the family right. business. 
But one thing that shocked me is that not only did I know very little about Korea, I didn't have any training. And my my boss had sort of hired me as a, another American teaching mm-hmm. classes. That was the appeal. It wasn't pedagogy that we were teaching. We, it was because we were native speakers and, and you know, hopefully a little charming enough to interact act with the students. So what kind of challenges and and idiosyncrasies you run into as well, teachers. Rolf, I look back now and cringe at how bad I was in the classroom. I mean, I was doing everything from, uh, you know, sock, pu- sock puppets and, <laughs> and uh, you know, hangman on the board and just, just a abysmal thing. Yeah. But, but, you know, hour after hour of these classes and you would just try to reach out to these kids and just get them to talk. And, uh, you know, we can go on and on about some of the jokes that we had uh, about just getting kids to speak. Yes, they had good grammar, but they couldn't, they couldn't express themselves. They had such difficulty in talking about their feelings, their emotions. Yeah. And, uh, and just, it wasn't about a language limitation. It was about a cultural uh, a gateway that they had to pass through so that they could express themselves. That seems uh, absurd now. You look at Korea and think, wow, they're such great at music and dancing. And, but this was a different time. And people were very, you know, they kept their face very covered and their emotions covered. Well, I think also, yeah, Korea, Korean is a very hierarchical language. You guys speak Korean better than I do. But there's certain, like I had housewife students. You know, we you hear students and you think, well, kids. Well, I had some junior high students. I had some businessmen students who were older than me. I had some housewife students who were older than me. Some of my most enthusiastic students were the housewives because the Korean language is, for lack of a better word, a little bit sexist. You know, you, you don't get to express yourself in certain ways if you're a woman. So they loved coming to English and being opinionated, you know, women asserting themselves and having these these um, more far-reaching conversations than they could under the rules of Korean culture. So I think, you know, Korea is mo- more economically developed. It's, it's this real force in East Asia now. But even traditionally, um, just the way the old Confucian rules for language meant that in English, kids could express themselves. The problem is oftentimes they didn't want to. They weren't used to it. Yeah, you know, I had a variety of students that I taught my first year. I had a businessmen's class, two or three mornings a week. I had taught a bunch of kindergarten, which was really unusual. I would taxi out to these schools and spend a class or two or three hours in kindergarten. And then uh, mostly middle schoolers. And so I felt like we were we were there to teach, but there was a show-off element to these schools, to bringing in the foreigner, the, the blue-eyed guy, the blue-eyed girl, the blonde-haired lady. And we were entertainers as much as we were teachers. I think parents were proud to say that their son or daughter took class with a foreigner and, and an American. I taught every kind of class imaginable, whether from kindergarten all the way through university to adults. Uh, I was hired for every kind of job. Uh, I would go to people's houses and I would play Monopoly with them. <laughs> was it was this private lessons? Private lessons. Okay, I yeah. would go and play hide and seek. I would have, I would play Pokemon cards with kids. I would uh, be hired by university classes for conversation. I had uh, English literature classes. I taught uh, games where we'd play underleg freeze tag uh, in these big auditoriums <laughs> with little children. We'd go outside and play kickball, but it was always just getting them to talk. Uh-huh. I would sit down with lawyers and doctors and yeah. they just wanted to make conversation or I was hired by a doctor that wanted me to read a sentence in Time magazine and he would repeat it while he walked on a treadmill. And it was just so fantastically weird. Auditoriums where you'd have a microphone with a hundred people and small groups at a, ca- at a cafe with three very professional people. Well, a couple of things I want to touch on here. One is that there's a distinction. We were brought in to, to teach at what are called hogwans, which are language institutes. Yeah. 
and they brought in either businessman classes or housewife classes or junior high classes or whatever. And there's also what are called privates, which sort of pedagogically is similar, but it's illegal. Everybody did it, but it was illegal. And you were making like 30, 40, $50 an hour doing one-on-one tutoring at, at these kids' home. And so that's worth acknowledging. Another thing I want to acknowledge is that Korea has a relationship to education unlike America and probably like any, unlike any place in the world. That, they, that it's a hardcore thing, that these kids, and you see it in the movie Parasite where they have these tutors that come, come into the home. These kids don't just have English tutors, they have math tutors. The, the, the reason they enjoy English classes is they have these silly Americans who come in and they play games with them. Right. And oftentimes I would be teaching kids, it's so education oriented, the kids were just exhausted. They'd been studying for 12 hours already when I went into their house to make $40 an hour to tutor them at night. Um, and so, yeah, oftentimes we would joke that we were like dancing monkeys, that in a way we're entertainers, we're just trying to cajole these kids into speaking English. And I think in, in a way I got better at it as it went. Like I, I sort of figured out what they needed. I, I, I figured out how phonetically Korean works. So I understood why the R and the L are confused because there's no separate character for that. But oftentimes when I was most vulnerable, I think is when I was most memorable for my students. I'm like, well, just the Sea of Japan. And my students are like, oh, teacher, teacher, it's not the Sea of Japan. It's the East Sea. And so I realized that, that by, you know, we have this American map and they're not going to call it the Sea of Japan. You know, Japan is their rival. And so I think my students liked me when I was kind of dumb and vulnerable in that sense. Uh, what kind of, do you remember any interesting classroom experiences that you guys had? Well, Rolf, again, I can, I can just go on mm-hmm. and on about the millions of things that happened in class, the fun things, the strange things, the mistakes you would make, the times when a student would call you out on something culturally that you did that was wrong, uh, you know, addressing an older student as maybe a friend, and then everyone would nervously laugh. You are not supposed to talk to him this way. He is uh, an advanced person. Uh, but I will, I will say this one thing, and this, I think this is very important, is that in the course of all these conversations you had with these students... The thing that would come out is the foreigner, whoever it was, the Australian, the Canadian, uh, the whoever, whoever, talking to the kids saying, you're okay. Mm. You, I know your parents put a lot of pressure on you for math and you have to have a perfect score and a perfect life. But I'm telling you, smile a little bit. It's, relax, play, be creative. Your imagination is important. Look at me. I'm just an example I'm a guy that grew up in this, this rural town and now I'm traveling and you can also do this. You can live an imaginative and creative life. And I think that this offset all of the pressure that these kids were under, that they did have a playtime, but they also had somebody to listen to them, somebody just to talk about ideas with them. Mm. And we see this because it's been 20 years now. And I see this with my Chinese students, with my Taiwanese students. They needed that somebody outside their culture to say, you can do this too. You can travel. You can go to Europe. You can backpack. You can be the one that takes the Trans-Siberian. And I, I'll, I have a lot of students that have now grown up and done those things and returned back to Korea. So when I think of Korea now, I have to say there's a connection between all these expatriates that went there and instilled in this youth culture that they can go out into the world and have you know, incredible experiences. Well, that's part of Segewa is that not, they're not just getting English skills, but they are learning the instincts around Westerners. You relax. It's less formal. You know, they might not be as prepared as you, but they have a different way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. Um, What about you, Steve? Yeah, I I think part of the English conversation classes was, was um, cultural um, training as well, or cultural exposure. I mean, 
Koreans are very we oriented in a lot of our conversations, you know, we ask them, how are you? What are you doing? You, you, you. And so they had to come up with me thinking, and that was a, a real turn for a lot of our students to, to come around to that, especially the female students who were more inclined to just focus on the group or their fam larger family. Do you guys know the Korean word for individualism? I, I forget oh, it. You're putting us on the spot. <laughs> well, I, I know that this is a this is a, a big lesson. I talk about it quite a bit that I learned in Korea is that I'm an American. I'm like, yeah, well, individual. I don't know exactly how it came up in the conversation, but I remember opening the dictionary, turning to individualism, reading the word, and my students are just like, oh, like individualism is sort of a romantic, rugged, do-it-yourself word in English, in American English. But in Korea, individualism is a little bit of a betrayal of these communities that yeah. are way more important. And we've seen it in the COVID era that these East Asian countries are much better at collectively um, asserting uh, communal values to solve the problem of coronavirus. Whereas Americans are mm -hmm. in these screaming matches about their individual rights, which I think must be a little bit bewildering to Koreans. And so I think that's one of the lessons that we got is that just the values and culture is a gut level thing. And... Um, you know, getting into what you learn when you go to a place, Peace Corps volunteers talk, end up talking a lot about what they learn, you know, how they learn so much more than they came and they taught when they went to a place. Understanding how culture suffuses everything is one of the huge lessons I learned in Korea. And you, it's not an intellectualized thing. You can read about it, but going in and saying, uh, what does that mean? I'd like to drink a, a tea. Right, right. Or would you like to drink some? And so you say that to a, a person who's of higher status than you, and that's sort of insulting. Even though you're being polite, you're politely saying, would you yeah, Would you like some tea? Leo, yeah. Yeah, if you don't say mashile or mashilimika or whatever, then um, the verb forms, you can be as polite. In your, in your head, you're being super polite. Mm -hmm. Out of your mouth, they're not used to a 20-something guy talking to a 60-something woman mm -hmm. and informally offering her a cup of tea. So even though it's a polite gesture, and my, my students, they knew that I wasn't trying to mess up, but you could see in their face, it's just like this housewife is like, what is wrong with you? You know, why are you saying that? Let's speak English because this is embarrassing. And so I think these are, these are these crazy lessons that you can't read about, that you can't make abstract. And I think sometimes... In the States, now as much as ever, we're afraid to uh, step on toes or offend each other or do the wrong thing, mm -hmm. when in fact doing the wrong thing were some of the most important lessons I learned about how culture is different. One thing I want to talk about is just, you talked about culture shock earlier, Brian, and, and culture shock, again, you can you can wrap your head about around what it might be, but it's sort of a, it's a kind of anxiety. It's a sort of, what the hell is, is this person making fun of me type mm -hmm. thing? That it's not just a cultural difference, but it's an emotional reaction to cultural difference. Um, and so, you know, on my outline here, I have like things like Norebong and Videobong and old people songs. And, and like the fact that you go to a punk rock mosh pit in Korea and after the song is over, people will bow to their elders in the same way they do in a normal situation. So I want to talk about these idiosyncrasies. One thing, I'll lead the way by saying... Oftentimes when we hear about Korea in the news, especially during this era, we would think, oh, North Korea is doing making provocations. They're about to go to war. I would when I showed up in, in, in Korea, I had friends and family who said, you should probably leave. The news is terrible. And you open a Korean newspaper and there is it's not on page one. Right. And so I remember very specifically uh, Chan Ho Park, who is a Korean, maybe the first big pitcher in the major leagues in America for the L.A. Dodgers. He got into a brawl. 
And Korea was way more obsessed about whether he was in the right or in the wrong to get in a fight in a baseball game than anything that was happening in North Korea. Um, and so again, this is until you get there, you don't realize that what you read in the news is different than the vibe on the ground. Yeah, uh, I remember Time Magazine had an article that showed this uh, map of the two uh, Koreas and these giant arrows flying back and forth and how long it would take for North Korea to destroy South Korea with its missiles. And I got these frantic phone calls at two o'clock in the morning uh, from my mom saying, you have to leave, you have to leave. And I said, mom, you know, don't worry. Uh, my students say that the North would not attack until the rice fields freeze over. And it's the summertime, it's all marshy. So nothing's gonna happen. So when you live in the country and you're immersed in the culture, the news that you get is completely the opposite. So you have to be aware of that kind of fake news, I guess. Different iterations of the fake news. I thought the South Korean take on North Korea was interesting. They had a what they called the sunshine policy, and I think it was just a general sort of policy of t tolerance and kindness to the North. I never really got a read on the conflict. People really didn't like to talk about it a lot. Um, the older generation that was sort of off limits and, and the younger generation would just sort of shake their head and say, well, you know, probably nothing will ever happen. Um, it's interesting, though, over time, the further they've gotten away from separation, I think you know, in the South, uh, there, there is not an advantage to reunification and it's less appealing all the time. Another weird thing is you'd hear all these stories from uh, students that would come back as soldiers. That's a big, it was a big part of, um, you talk about uh, the, the things you learn as an expatriate. One was that I would have these students at university as a freshman and they would come in and this is the first time they'd finished high school and they dye their hair purple or they get an earring or they join a band and suddenly their nickname was, you know, Dragon Boy Z or Rocker or something. And then they would be a student and they were drunk. They were drunk for six months and then you wouldn't see them again. And they would go to the military and they'd come back three years later and all they wanted was they had a straight laced haircut. They were completely yes sir, no sir. They wanted to graduate school, get married, get a job, and start being a functioning member of society. Right. And that really impressed me that that this was something that was um, that was molded. The country was molding young men. But a lot of those uh, young guys would tell me stories about they'd be they'd be stationed at the DMZ, and at night they would they would yell across and talk to the North Koreans, and they would say, "What are you eating?" And say. We don't have any food. It's we have an egg. Oh, we have some ramen. Oh, I hope you have a good dinner, brother. Oh, you too. And the sweetness of these little messages at night uh, also made me think that this was a story that no one was telling. That there was uh, a kind of understanding and friendship and kinship between the North and the South that's always going to be there. Well, one thing that's worth acknowledging is that when I came to Korea, I assumed that the air quotes enemy was North Korea. When in fact their their air quotes enemy is Japan, it's Japan, yeah. right? So a lot of my students are like, you should spell Korea C O R E A, and it's like, why? And it's because it's C is earlier in the alphabet than J for Japan, yeah. and so K comes after J. That's how micromanaged the rivalry with Japan there is. I mean, there's just a lot of, or at least in the nineties, there was a lot of cultural. Yeah, just to give you another I'll piggyback on that, there's a there's a rock in the middle of the Sea of Japan, oh, the East Sea. Tokdo. It's called Tokdo. And it's little, it's really tiny. It's about the size of a Volkswagen bus. It's like <laughs> some bird shit. Yeah. And <laughs> and the the two countries are fighting over this rock. And you can't make fun of it. I don't mean to offend anybody who's listening uh, to this, but you really have to be very careful how you talk about this little rock because they both claim it. 
and uh, it gets very politicized and people are, are steamed if the Japanese uh, claim it or if there's a part in the news that said Tokyo is ours and then suddenly you have riots in the street and Rolf, one thing we should talk about is our first examples of uh, seeing a police riot where oh, students would yeah. uh, hold Molotov cocktails and suddenly you, you come out of a coffee shop and you, you're on a small little alley and you look one way and there are riot police in full gear with batons and helmets. And you look the other way and there's all your students and they've got, you know, soju alcohol bottles that are lit on fire and they're just tossing these things back and forth. And you're like, what am I into? What is this thing? And then, you know, after the bombing happens, they all kind of shake hands and smoke a cigarette and go back to their normal life. I wrote about this when I first came to Korea because it was so weird. Again... This sounds anomalous. It's like, yeah, do women really hike in high heels? Yeah, they do. Do they really have riots at the time? There was a certain time of year when the weather got warmer, the student protest clubs, <laughs> oftentimes the protest clubs didn't even really know what they were protesting yet. They were just in the protest club and they would come out and they would throw Molotov cocktails and the police would shoot um, you know, tear gas. Right. And often the police were the same age, maybe a couple years older than the kids. They'd been impressed in a national service. And this wasn't just a one-off thing that every university in Korea, it felt like, had protest season with these battles in the streets. And it's the first place I ever breathed in tear gas. You guys started out in the city of Chungju. I started in the city of Busan, which is sort of like the Los Angeles of Korea. And in the spring, several times a week, we would have tear gas riots and Molotov cocktails burning in the streets. Um, I got stuck in a McDonald's once. Sorry to admit that, but yeah, I went to McDonald's sometimes. I could have eaten perfectly good Korean food. And that's just another anomalous thing about the country, that for some reason, it was important for young people to be in these protest clubs, even though sometimes they didn't know yet what they were protesting. It was a rite of passage. The young freshman would come in. The, the guy who was the riot police would be his senior. They're all at university together. And they'd say, oh, when I was your age, I really protested. And we will have a protest tomorrow. So the next day, here's the senior and the junior throwing... Molotov cocktails and tear gas canisters at and, each other. And by senior and junior, you don't mean years in school. You mean uh, yeah, age, age wise, rank. Yes. Yeah. But then after the riot, when everything settled down, you'd have the protester and the riot guy in full riot gear sharing a beer yeah, together cigarette. or sharing a cigarette together. And you'd see that this they were on the same sides, just, just raging against situations that they had no control over. And it was something they had to do. So I think this was a part of... Uh, watching this and thinking, what, what am I experiencing? Yeah, when when Brian and I arrived in Chengdu in '94, there was uh, some sort of trade issue, and as a result of that, this was a really strong U uh, anti U.S. sentiment, and so there were there was there were riots at the university sure. almost daily in the summertime. I saw my first flag burning there. Mm-hmm. I was tear gassed just yeah. as a spectator, sort of watching this thing, and uh, there were a couple times at this little back alley bar that Brian used to. Brian and I used to hang out mm-hmm. that the, the owner had to come in and kind of peel off some drunks to, to leave us alone because they were really angry about, you know, yeah. they, why are you serving these foreigners? Yeah. They're Americans. Go home. The, the flag burning is hilarious. Uh, I would, you'd go outside and there'd be someone burning your flag. Burning then, an American flag. Burning an American flag. And be like, oh, okay. And then the absurd thing is the same kid that was burning the flag was sitting in the front row of your class looking at you going with the English, hello teacher, can you teach me some English? And you're like, you, dude, you're just burning my flag. Can we talk about this? No, what about this verb conjugation? Well, and I think it's, just it's more insane. formalized that way. You burn American flag because that is what you do at protest. That's just sort of what is understood. And so there's many things, 
like as a teacher, I would, there were things I didn't understand. It's like hiking in high heels type things where my student said, yeah, I'll probably be married in two years. And it's like, oh, well, who you're dating? Well, I'm not, I'm not I don't date anybody. <laughs> I'm going to be married in two years. And so they still have these vestiges of the old arranged marriage culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, it just flummoxed me. It was like a month before I, re- I couldn't figure out why I had students who knew when they were going to be married, but mm-hmm. didn't know who they were going to be married to yet. And these are cultural differences, you know, that, that we, again, in the individualist culture, our family doesn't really have that much say in who we marry. Um, yet for Koreans, it, it, it didn't sound strange to say, yeah, I'll, I'll, in two years, I'll be married. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll know then. And that just blew me away. Were, were there other in, instances? Oh, there's so many instances. Well, first of all, diet, just for example, uh, completely stopping eating the food that you're used to and yeah. now suddenly starting a new diet of rice and vegetables. It, it, took a, it took a while for this to adjust. And I remember long bouts of constipation, diarrhea, being sick, uh, hospitalized. Uh, you'd get momsal or like the sudden flu that would happen and you'd get an IV drip or, uh, you know, uh, getting violently sick, uh, going to the hospital. Uh, and so those things were another kind of culture shock. I got food poisoned a couple times mm-hmm. awful. That, that, was, that was horrible. But... Um, so I think when I think back about the protests, um, being in Chenju that first year was the first time I had faced head on any anti-U.S. sentiment. And it was a real lesson for me to understand that there's a whole different perspective on who the U.S. is in the globe and what that's like. And, and that came from our host country, Koreans. But we also worked with a lot of other expats from Canada and from the U.K. in particular. And so we probably got a lot of feedback that, that we had never had about... Yeah. Who you are, talking who to Australians, is. talking to uh, Brits, uh, Canadians, and all in this together. And from their perspective, it was very uh, sort of um, just absurd that every person that they met assumed that they uh-huh. were American. They hated and that. And they hated that. You know, they, oh, this is American, and they, oh, I'm Canadian. <laughs> this really bothered them, and of course it should. But I think talking to them about this experience made me also feel that it was just very humbling. The thing I wanted to say was not just the diet. But while the anti-American sentiment was going on, there was the bathhouse. And the bathhouse was a part of culture that everybody went to. And the things that happened in the bathhouse, uh, you know, we'll keep this. Uh, so, so describe the bathhouse well, a little bit. You, it's you, a public bathhouse. It's a pa- public bathhouse. They're everywhere. It's, it's just very culturally accepted to go into. So you would walk inside the front door and you pay your money. The women go into one room. The men go into another and uh, you change out your clothes, and then you go into this big tub where, of course, it's it's separated. Everybody's naked. Everybody's naked, uh-huh. and the men are playing naked checkers, and they're playing. They're reading the newspaper naked, and and they are swimming naked, and they're lounging with their bandanas on for hours and hours, taking these steams. But the thing that made it so unique was they are obsessed with your naked body. They would be staring at you. They would walk over and comment on it. They would point at you. Uh-huh. They would talk about your penis. Yeah. They would talk about you openly uh, about your naked body. And if you had any kind of uh, blemish or or uh, too much strength, hair, too much strength, they, they wanted it. Well, probably hair and body weight. I mean, Koreans are, are comparatively hairless and slim, right? right. Um, and so Westerners but the, come in. But the, the penis discussion <laughs> was uh, unbelievable to me that this would be something that people would walk up to me and comment about my penis. This is something that um, that confused me, that, that, that in Korea, the rules for what you can and can't talk about are different. And, right. and so um, 
oftentimes they would be describing their friend as like, oh, well, she's very cute and fat. You know, or I, I showed a video of my gra- farmer grandfather in Kansas, and he's like, "Oh, he's very handsome and fat." And it's like, why are they talking about fatness? Well, there's, I mean, there's different degrees of fatness, and in Korea culture, what Korea was, which is a very poor country, not that much prior to when we were there, being fat meant that you were well fed and that you were healthy, and so I think that there's like tong tong is like handsome fat, and tung tung is like obese fat, and and so I just it was strange, just like somebody comes up and it's like. Let's talk about your penis. You know, it's like, well, this person's fat. How about that? I mean, I'm sort of putting the Kansas accent on this stuff. But like what is acceptable in conversation is different. And one more thing I'll add is that oftentimes it's like, well, the status is so important that they try to figure out like, who are you? How much do you make? What's your background? Are you married? Which is a very personal question because they're just sort of trying to figure out the, the algebra of their relationships by Korean standards. Which was really weird. It's like, yeah, why is it any of your business if I'm married or how much money I make, right? And these are the first questions someone would ask. They'd say, how old are you? And you say, "Uh, I'm this age. Well, are you married? Uh, No. Uh, How much money do you make? And this Mm -hmm. kind of interrogation would feel very intimidating. But they're just trying to socially uh, try to understand how to talk to you or, you know, how to address you. I was going to say another thing is, getting back to the Michael Bolton comment, another thing that was really culturally shocking is, their point of reference would be uh, Jim Carrey or Tom Cruise. So they say, oh, you look like Jim Carrey and Tom Cruise. And then, you know, that's how they would describe you. Or they would walk up and say, oh, teacher, you have a zit today. Or you are very ugly today. And they're just trying to be polite, but it came off as completely the, the opposite. That was a big adjustment. I got Arnold Schwarzenegger a lot. Like, I was super skinny, but just for whatever reason, the, the, the way my face was shaped. But... <laughs> I mean, this oftentimes, you know, just sort of an old racist trope in the U.S. is is not really being able to discern one Asian person from another person. There's a reversal, too, that oftentimes they're like they're talking about a coworker who's clearly like this Canadian guy who's doesn't look at all to me like the, the blonde guy from Florida. Right. But they have them confused. And I know that Steve oftentimes. There was a, a GI who was sort of caused trouble in bars. Yeah, and you were, you were banned from bars for just because Koreans sometimes couldn't tell their Americans apart. Couple places I used to get Michael Douglas. In my okay. first okay. year, I had okay. my hair slicked back, so I had the Wall Street thing happening. <laughs> One other thing that's worth acknowledging is that the country was booming. Status was important in Korea. And one thing that freaked me out when I first got there is that you could walk down the street, find a perfectly good piece of furniture, mm. and move it into your place. <laughs> like, I didn't have a desk when I first showed up there. And I'm here, where should I buy a desk? And you guys are like, yeah, just just hang tight. You'll see one on the street. And if it's on the street, then that means somebody threw it away, mm-hmm. and you can move it up to your apartment. And that's what I did. I furnished my apartment with garbage because Koreans were so upwardly mobile at the time. And we're not interested in used anything. There were no thrift stores in Korea. You needed the, the, the best status, the best quality, everything. And in a way, it was like this free, you know, flea market that mm-hmm. you could just walk down the oh. street and get free mm-hmm. stuff. I think we furnished our whole apartment. Right. More but than that's just, that's just another example of how everything was hyper real. Everything you thought it was Alice through the looking glass. Everything you thought you knew about reality was completely opposite. I should go shopping for a chair. No, you'll just find one on the street. Or, oh, I think I look pretty good today. And someone would say, oh, no, you you, you look terrible. Or, oh, you, you look like you were very fat today. Did you Teacher, eat? You are fat. Yes, and you, you, you never, you're discombobulated all the time. But uh, even though all these things were happening, I still want to make this very clear. 
this is a love affair we're talking yeah. about. That I, I loved it. And and you you eliminated all the distractions from home. You eliminated all these kinds of fears and worries about yourself, and you just immersed yourself in the situation and you just let it ride. Whatever they said, you just said, Oh, okay, I'm gonna learn from this and, and just keep going. So it sounds critical, maybe, but I want to there's I had such affection for these experiences and they they just shaped me. And I'm so thankful for all of these things that have happened uh, in Korea because yeah. they're just so, they're just wonderful to think about. Every day was different. Yeah. And, 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 and there probably wasn't a day that went by that we're, we're, we weren't surprised by something. You know, yeah. we had a unique and new experience yeah. constantly. Yeah. Mountain climbing. Remember one time Steve and I were mountain climbing and we were, we were going over these mountains and these beautiful hills and these autumn hills. And we came upon this little small, uh, uh, like mountain restaurant, very, very tiny little hole in the wall with, uh, tires on the roof and, a, and an old wooden door and we sit down we're so hungry we're just starving and the woman brings a plate of grasshoppers and she puts them on the table <laughs> and we're just looking at these grasshoppers thinking what the hell it's time, time to this? eat <laughs> <laughs> so we're eating the grasshoppers or the first time uh that you maybe you'd eat uh boshantong boshantong is dog soup and i remember it was it was summertime and the and my students would be giggling and they go, oh, teacher, you are going to eat boshantong today. And I thought, oh, okay, I don't know what that is. And so they'd take you to this, this beautiful restaurant. You'd sit down and, and this hot steaming soup would come out and you'd eat the whole thing. And, oh, so delicious. Wow, what is this? And they'd, he, 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 you are eating dog. Well, yeah, no, I mean, that's a very, it's another thing that I wrote about. Um, and that's another part of the cross-cultural conversation. Like boshantong is a euphemism. It means health enhancement stew. It doesn't mean dog meat stew. Um, that's something I've, I've sort of stopped talking about at colleges because uh, it used to be, oh, well, here's Boshantong. And then I would flip it. I would sort of teach a lesson. And it's like, okay, well, some like it's called health enhancement, but it's sort of boner food. It's like virility food for middle-aged men. Not everybody eats it. And maybe even fewer people eat it now than they did back then. But I would flip it and say that we would be a little self-righteous about dog meat. But then they turn around and say, well, where's your grandma? You know, that basically they would move their elderly people in their house and take care of them where we sort of outsource our elderly people in the U.S. I actually, I, I've, I don't talk about that at colleges anymore because people get upset. They're trying they think they think I'm making a joke about Koreans. It's like, no, they actually eat Boshantong. Um, and, and so this is another this is another reason why it's so important, I think, to live in another culture, because you can you can talk about Boshantong and understand you're not disparaging Koreans. Right. You're talking about some people who have certain practices and that understanding this in a nuanced way is way more important than a set of rules about correctness and how we should believe about other cultures as opposed to being in another culture and sometimes uh, offending people for reasons you don't know why. You're trying to be polite and suddenly you've, you've offended them. Korea is also a very public culture. I lived in, in Busan, which is probably six million people, and there's not a lot of privacy. And so one fun thing you guys can weigh in. I mean, there was Norebang, which is like karaoke. It's the Korean word for a karaoke room where you're singing songs together. There's also video bongs. This is before streaming video where if you wanted to watch a movie, um, you could go to a room where there, there's a warrant of maybe 60 rooms and you, you request the videotape and the, the director will put it in the VCR that goes to your room. And you can watch, I, sometimes I go to video bongs and watch movies by myself. But one funny thing, I, I realized that a lot of my students were going to video bongs to hook up because they didn't have privacy because grandma was living in the back room. You know, mom was cooking dinner or whatever. 
And then they were, if they were in love with their boyfriend or girlfriend, there was no place to make out and hook up. And so video bongs were probably half full of teenagers, like sort of watching the movie, but mostly mm-hmm. enjoying their privacy. Listen, it's the, it's the equivalent of a, of a backseat in a, <laughs> on a, an old dirt road. Yeah. A lot of first kisses at the Norvong. Yeah. yeah. Video bong. I mean, they, they're also, um, they, they talk about, you talk about love hotels uh, all, all throughout Asia. What was the name of those little Yogwans? Yogwans. Yeah. Um, and again, you read about that and you think, oh, that doesn't happen very often. And then suddenly you're, you get, you have a girlfriend, you're in Korea, you have a girlfriend and no privacy. And so you're in the, I remember going to Yogwan in Busan, walking down the hall and there's some of my students, right? Like everybody mm-hmm. is looking for a private place in this very public country. Right. And, um, Actually, I think there was less, maybe there was a little bit of shame, but at the end of the day, my students knew that I had I needed privacy well, too. You know, the thing that it was culturally accepted—that's what everyone knew, and that's what everyone understood—is that you would. It's like drinking culture, for example. Uh, my young students at nineteen, they would go out, they would go out to drink, and they would go out to to get drunk. And I don't mean drunk, drunk. I'm talking hammered drunk carried out of the bar by their friends mm-hmm. or uh, puking in the bathroom and coming back. And yeah. so we would go out for just a nice night to maybe have a drink or two. And we would see our students just obliterated by alcohol, out of control, uh, puking all over, the, being carried up, uh, pants down uh, and, and dropped in the street. And then they would go back in to drink more. Angry. And angry. Fighting. Yes. And or like a birthday. And someone would uh, have a birthday party and they would get the guy so drunk, uh-huh. they'd stand him in the middle of the street and all of his friends would would make this big circle around him and race at him and, and jump in the air and drop kick him. And they would kick him in the chest and another one would come by and smack him in the head and then another one would kick him and then they'd take the cake and they'd dump it on his head and, and he'd be laying there on the floor and then they'd go, ha ha ha, let's drink some more and they'd carry him back inside and... and what? That's such a dude thing, but like the specific drink is shocked me when I got there because there's less shame attached to drinking there. And I remember early on walking down the street, I'd, I'd be going in for my 7 a.m. class or private tutorship session and there'd be businessmen in their suits passed out on the street. Yeah. So there's not very much crime and there's not very much shame for drinking. And so um, sometimes in various jobs, I would I would come in and say, oh, I'm super sick and they're here. Okay, all right. Yeah, I guess we'll let you leave. If you come in and say, Oh, I was super drunk last night and I'm hungover and I can't teach. They'll give you the two thumbs up and say, okay, I understand. So drinking culture in Korea was very strange and new to me. We come from this puritanical culture where drinking, certain shame is attached to drinking and even embarrassing behavior is sort of forgiven, or at least it was in the 90s in Korea. Um... While you're drinking, while, while you're drinking, you have it. It's a different pass. I think it's a very formal. You guys can chime in in a second here, but it feels like it's such a formal culture, right down to the verbs that they use, that they can they can release pressure. They drink, and suddenly the rules have shifted, and they can be jackasses, and um, and they can sober up the next day and get off I their line. I can completely attest to this. This is absolutely true. That it is just culturally accepted yeah alcohol was really a social lube lubricant in korea for sure and so with such a formal societal structure i think sometimes getting drunk was the only way that koreans could get through to each other and it was a lot of times how they would solve problems interpersonally Mm -hmm. or in business Um, but it was incredible to see the amount that people would drink and and i feel like that was sort of this blind spot in korea where it just was nobody really talked about it it wasn't a problem you know somebody gets wasted on Tuesday night and they're staggering down the, the street in a suit, like you said. 
that's normal. That's just a Tuesday night in Busan or, or wherever. Yeah, adult relationships are interesting. You guys married Koreans. Mm-hmm. Um, I dated some some Korean women, um, and I was startled by their need for fights sometimes. You know, I sort of, I, my relationship philosophy was sort of this even-handed Midwestern, what's the problem? Let's try and solve some problems. Mm-hmm. Literally, culturally, uh, these women I dated, they needed that meltdown. They needed to break open the emotional seal of the situation. We couldn't just talk about it. You know, obviously we have fights in the West too, but it was just enough of a cultural difference that like every day your students say something that doesn't make sense and you have to wrap your head around it. You're, the woman you're trying to date is behaving in ways that make no sense. Your, your taxi driver, your restaurant server, that basically not just do you have educational opportunities every day, that literally everything you do is part of an ongoing education of living in another country. Yeah. I got in I got in so many fights in Korea that I that I have no idea how they started as a fight. I remember I I parked my car in front of this guy's store. I had this really little car uh, called a Tico. It was so small that once the car fell into a pothole and I was able to get out and lift it up out of the pothole, it was so tiny. But I parked my little Tico in front of this guy's uh, restaurant and he started barking at me, just no no no. And I said, well no 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 to you. And suddenly. We're throwing fists at each other, and and I'm like, why? Why are we fighting? He's looking at me like, why are we fighting? And I don't know. And I got one time I was outside of a bar, and I was talking to this girl, and suddenly I look around, and there's a there's a guy just breathing just heavily on me, and and suddenly he he pushes me, and I think, well, we're gonna fight, and he runs and drop kicks me right in the chest and kicks me out of my shoes, <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm sitting on my butt in the middle of this alley, I'm looking at my shoes, and he's standing there, and I'm like. You just kicked me out of my shoes, man. This is the greatest thing. Let me buy you a beer. So we're now we're inside drinking a beer together, arm in arm. And I'm like, you're the guy that kicked me out of my shoes. And he's like, yeah, I don't speak in English. And now well, I've got a new best friend. We should touch on just the idiosyncrasy of, of expatriates. Because usually if there's a conflict, it's because the American is being a jackass, maybe in ways that he doesn't understand. Right. You told me about that, Tico, that car story once before. I think you were upset and you were swearing. You're using... Like the F word, and he was hearing the F word, and he knew that was bad. And he, he, you were angry at your car. He, he mm-hmm. thought he was angry at you, and suddenly yeah. it was fisticuffs, right? Um, and so I think that there's a lot of situations that lend themselves to conflict just because of of, of cultural misunderstanding. Um, Combine that with the fact that sometimes you have otherwise unemployable people getting jobs as teachers. They didn't really vet you very much. We weren't trained as teachers. We all ended up being pretty good teachers. But a lot of times, a lot of broken people will show up in Korea and they are hired because they're American or Canadian. And then they're sort of horrible people. Um, expats, especially expat uh, teachers, sort of had a, a bad reputation. Sort of the, the clickbait news of the time was uh, another American teacher is doing a bad thing in his class. Um, and so I think it was, it was tied in. There's a little bit of cultural misunderstanding. There's maybe a little bit of Korean chauvinism, but then there's also expatriates being jackasses. And some expatriates couldn't ha- handle their alcohol very well, for example. So let's talk a little bit Rob, about this. Is so this, gap. this is so true. This is, it's two sides of the same coin. On the one side, there were people that went to Korea like like us. I think that were very young and wanted experiences and just were open. Just let it let it happen to me. I want to know and I want to make mistakes and and I'm gonna I'm gonna get into the culture and 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 understand it. The other side of that coin is the absolute burnout. Burnouts. The guy at the last rung of his own society that sees the job overseas as a chance to maybe you know just waste time or his last opportunity and not just Korea I've traveled in to many other countries and taught 
and Korea was at the upper rung of this kind of burnout. You could make money. In there Korea. are other countries where they end up in, in other places where really these are degenerate type people and and they they are abysmal to be around. So I can understand completely how the Koreans would or any other culture would be like, how is this guy a teacher and we're supposed to respect him when he's just a, a slob of a person? Well, this is touched on in other expatriate literatures like in Paris you know when Hemingway was there with F. Scott Fitzgerald there were some fuck-ups basically who and actually Gertrude Stein writes about this I think in a movable feast about well maybe it's the sun also rises, but you, you drink yourself to death yeah. you spend your time talking you're, you're sort of useless you're an expatriate see right. and so I think that happens that that not just in Korea but other parts of the world there are people and sometimes we're the worst version of ourselves I think sometimes under the influence of alcohol, we did things that we probably wouldn't do again under different circumstances that sometimes we were trying out American sides of ourselves that we regret having tried out. But um, there could be an ugly expat side to Korea. Oh, yeah. And not just Korea. You know, you find these people all through Thailand and in Vietnam and in Laos. And you go all through uh, the, you know, sort of southern European countries or the eastern European countries are there. And they're just, they're just complete burnouts that use the culture, that drink, that uh, uh, make a mess of the culture. They, they well, I'll stop there, but yeah. they, they make a lot of mistakes that the rest of us are sort of paying for and try to make up for. You see a lot of angry alcoholics yeah. or midlife crisis or sort of coming off a divorce or, right. or the depressed loner. So, yeah. Well, I, I think, too, there's a, you mentioned Canadians. Like, all of my roommates my first year were Canadians. Can, can, Canada's economy was hurting so if you graduated from college, you could probably make more money as a teacher than anything you'd find mm-hmm. in Canada. And so it was just young people stuff that basically Canes would come. They would they would they had sort of a, a fantasy vision of, of of Korea that didn't really come true. They they thought oh well, it's a Buddhist country and people are really nice. No, it's a workaholic country and you're going to work your butt off. And so they were depressed. And so and then they would complain about things. And it's amazing how. You know, the second young Americans or Canadians are sort of a minority in a culture, it's just like, well, people are racist against Americans or Canadians or whatever. It's like, yeah, actually, you're a, you're a depressed person who who's shirking their job and isn't handling this emotionally very well. And again, that, that culture shock comes in there sometimes where I was that depressed person yeah. who was judging Korean culture uh, for unfair reasons just yeah. because I didn't understand what the hell was going on. People who slipped out of the cracks of their own, their own society were trickling into these countries, doing these jobs. And- uh, we're falling apart. I, I think that happens everywhere. We're almost to the top of the hour, so let's just wrap things up a little bit about how it influenced your lives. Now, both of you married Koreans, so that's an obvious one, and I'm, I, I welcome you to talk about that. But I remember sitting with both of you, sitting on your ondol floor. It's a heated Korean uh, mm-hmm. floor. The, the heat comes off of the floor. And just dreaming about travel. I often talk about my influences as a vagabonding guy. I often forget about when we just sat in our rooms in Korea and said, I'm going to go to China next year. I'm going to get a job in Vietnam. It was just speculation. I didn't, all those things I said I was going to do, I didn't do, but I did things that were kind of even cooler than that. I remember talking about your experience, Brian, on the Trans-Siberian train when you, um, you had this amazing adventure and I tried to replicate that. I remember, Steve, you had these adventures in East Europe where you were invited by like a heavy metal band to come in and sing in the studio and it's just like, Oh my God, so much is available. So it's not just the lessons I was learning in Korea about culture, the money I was making and, and, the, and the new things that I was understanding in Korea, but I also 
a big influence on this expatriate experience was the potential I saw in travel, but not just travel, but other cultures. I just feel like I came into Korea one year, walked out two years later, way more equipped, not just as a traveler, but as a person. Yeah. What kind of lessons did you guys learn? So for me, I think growing up in a small town, the opportunity to travel really opened up my eyes and, and gave me a unique worldview. That was very, very, very important for me developmentally to think about where the U.S.'s place is, uh, to experience other cultures. I loved living in another culture rather than just traveling through it. I think that that was... Uh, um, it's humbling. It, yeah. Yeah, and, and it was a good place for us to season. When, when you're 22 and you finish your degree, you're not really, you don't have all the life tools yet. And so that time in Korea gave us a lot of very unique experience. I felt it was very special to be yeah. there. Um, yeah, humbling. You, know, you, humbling you grow up as an American, you, you're told this is the greatest country in the world and you're so lucky to be here in America first. But you, you start to travel and you, you're able to judge your own country and you're able to see how other people see the lifestyle that they think also maybe this kind of idealistic place. Uh, and it, it is humbling. You, you learn compassion and sympathy and you learn to, to think about other people and maybe what can I do to serve or uh, a life of service or a life of helping. But also the thing I wanted to say most foremost, other than my wife and my kids, uh, but the thing that, that all these travel and all these different countries that we've been to uh, gave me the, that the, the world is possible, that you can do it. It's not just an idea. It's not just a thing that other people do that you can do it, that it sounds crazy to say, oh, I can, I can uh, travel by train across India, or I can um, take a boat from through the Indian Ocean or travel across Africa. Yeah, you can, you can, and people do this, and you can do it too. So even in, my, in the smallest things in my life, I feel more confident and I feel like I'm open to it. Even if I make a mistake, it's okay. I'm just gonna kind of roll with it. And it relaxed me but also made me much stronger as a person just to try new things and, and take on life and let it, let it, the experiences shape me and make me who I am. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. And so for us, um, I know I appreciate that I, that Korea facilitated and front loaded travel earlier in my life, you know, rather than at a time later in life after retirement, um, I got to do it early on. And so that to me, it, it's still, I still carry that as a very unique thing that I've had the chance to do. Um, and I remember coming home, when I finally decided to go home and get a real job and not, you know, I knew teaching wasn't going to be my lifetime passion. Um, I think I did the math and, and one out of every six days of my life, I had been in a country other than the U S. And so that was, that was a special perspective for me as well. There might be some listeners out there who've never left their own home country before and are considering this. As a final thought, what advice might you give someone who's considering the expat life, not just Korea, we're speaking specifically to Korea, but in general, moving away from your country and living in another culture for a while, what advice do you have? Well, do it. <laughs> go. Do it. What are you waiting for? Uh, we know you talk about a gap year, uh, graduating and, and should I go now or uh, should I go after university or you're maybe a little bit older and you're in between jobs and you think, oh, it's too late for me or maybe like you said in retirement, you're at 55 or 60 and you think, oh, I'd, maybe maybe it's too late or, oh, now I'm going to go. But it's never too late. And it, you between 18 to, to 70, go immerse yourself in these things. You're going to be so much better for it. You're going to eat better. You're going to live better. And you're going to everything that you, you do is going to shape the next thing. 
And so these are just such positive, uh, like you said, just great appreciation mm -hmm. for all of the things and the people I met and the mistakes I made and the funny things that happened. Uh, they just have opened up new friendships and new uh, experiences and wonderful places that I've gone. So go, do it, live your dreams. In, in any circumstance, in any way possible, go try and live in a foreign culture. Take that opportunity. Yeah, and one thing I might add is that sometimes you'll have what feel like the worst day of your life, uh -huh. but it's worth it. Like all the bad experiences were part of what ended up being so essential and so important. Right. Not just for my travel life, but my life in general. I came out the other side um, much stronger and more, more dynamic. More empathetic and more dynamic, yeah. yeah. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. <laughs>